everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. Uh, I'm your hostess, Peaches Christ, and I'm joined here by my fantastic co-host, as always, filmmaker and friend, creative collaborator, Michael Varroni. Hello, hello, Peaches. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk about this week's movie. Of course, I'm excited to talk about every movie every week, but I think this one's uh, extra special for kids of the video store era. Absolutely. And maybe someday I'll have to force us to do an episode just so I can hear you say, today I'm not excited to talk about our um, chosen subject. You know what? The day that it happens, I'll just surprise you. Like, you'll never see it coming. It will be the movie you don't know. Right, that's true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I'll have to think about that. But yes, okay, so what is this this movie, this mystery movie that most of our listeners already know we're about to introduce because they saw it in the title? Well, today's movie is a tale of eternal youth and Hollywood revenge, starring the mighty Meryl Streep, the amazing Goldie Hawn, movie star Bruce Willis, and directed by the great Robert Zemeckis. It is, of course, Death Becomes Her. And uh, what more can you say, really? This movie is is truly one of a kind. It absolutely is. I, I like you, um, know that I'm excited to talk about all the movies and subjects that we talk about, um, but particularly this one, um, because I I love the movie so much. It's one of those movies that I've I've loved for years and years and years. But as many of you know, I did a Midnight Mass movie series for many years in person. And Michael and I do hope to bring back a live version of this podcast and do some screenings in the future. But my Midnight Mass movie series sort of morphed into parody uh, plays that I would write and direct. And one of my most favorite of all time was when I got to create a show called Drag Becomes Her, um, starring myself as the, uh, it, well, my name in the show is <laughs> Isabella. Oh my God, I can't remember what my last name is in the show, but I know my first name is Isabella. You know, we changed my last name because it was offensive. I think it was, it was offensive. It was called like Isabella Rosahishi, I think, was one of the... <laughs> wow, of the Peaches. Movie. Wow. Please don't cancel me. Um, Although yeah. you you being offensive, shock to, to me. Right. Shock. I mean, <laughs> it, it was brought to my attention that that's offensive. So, um, but yes, I still went by Isabella. Um, but yeah, I, we, as you know, we did the play uh, with Jinx Monsoon as Madeline Ashton although she was really playing Jinx Monsoon and as Benda La Creme, you know, in the um, Goldie Hawn part. Um, and both Hecklina and Major Scales played the Bruce Willis part, depending on which which version of the show you saw, Hecklina out of drag. Um, and I know we're going to talk to those um, co-stars in a moment, um, but I just wanted to say that as someone who does this for a living... You have to watch these movies over and over and over again. And then you have to live in the, the the music of the movies. And then you have to hear the dialogue from the movies. And you write your own version of the dialogue. And I'll tell you, there are some of these parody shows that I create that by the time I'm done, and we've done our runs, and we've done the show, Michael... I don't care for that movie anymore, to be quite honest. <laughs> you know, like, I, I've kind of gotten sick of it, or I'm tired of it, or maybe I realized it wasn't as good as I thought it was, you know. But I'll say this about Death Becomes Her. 
No, no, no. No, it gets more and more fantastic every time. These performers give you so many little nuggets, so many delicious moments. The music is perfection. The way it's shot is beautiful. It's my favorite Zemeckis film. I just love it. And I know you love it too. I do. And I do love, you know, Robert Zemeckis is one of those filmmakers that sort of defined a generation of blockbuster films. Uh, you know, he joined Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and that sort of class of guys who made, you know, these big movies that uh, kind of changed the course of a decade. You get back to the future. You get these these boy movies, I guess, for lack of a better term. And I, I love all of that work, but I love that this movie is such an outlier in Zemeckis's filmography. He rarely gets this weird, maybe used cars is the only other time I can think of him kind of going off the deranged side. Um, but this movie's unique because it's not only hyper queer in its own way, it's sort of a great Hollywood director sort of turning the lens around on Hollywood and looking at these these little issues that add up to a lot of teeth that make the industry not as nice or as glamorous as we want to think it is. And um, I, I always like to bring up that this movie, uh, for most people who don't know, actually began its life as a Tales from the Crypt feature film script. And when you know that and heading into the film, you can sort of see that DNA because Tales from the Crypt is usually about people making foolhardy decisions and how it turns into a tale of just desserts and it's done in that sort of hyper comic book colored way. And Death Becomes Her is all of those things. I think it fits very well into that world. We're just lacking a crypt keeper. Um, but with with Zemeckis here doing this as, as the kind of director he is, it takes it to another level because it becomes a full commentary on, on the industry itself. Yeah, I mean, to go from being a Tales from the Crypt uh, movie to... A, a really big budgeted A-list star powered, you know, big director, big sets. I mean, let's face it. There's only a few movies uh, from this era who convincingly integrated CGI with practical effects. Uh, I think this one and Jurassic Park are like the best examples of movies that over time have really uh, convincingly stayed effective as far as the special effects go. Um, and I love, I wish more films today actually utilized that marriage that, you know, Spielberg and Zemeckis did when CGI was a lot newer and they knew we've got to get some practical versions of a Meryl Streep, you know, um, puppet. And, you know, they used animatronics for her twisted, you know, they, they made an, a robotic face for her, but then also integrated the CGI components for, you know, things like the hole in the stomach and, and uh, other stuff. And it's so well done that I think those special effects continue to look great, continue to be impressive. Um, and I wish more films today actually still, you know, uh, relied on the, the perfect marriage of a practical effect with the CGI enhancement rather than what seems to be the the, the thing now, which is just to do it all in CGI and, yeah. and make it all animated. And it's like, no, no, I, I love that, that sort of old school um, uh, style of, of uh, practical effects. And it, it fits in with, as we're going to discuss with um, our guests, this sort of idea of it's, you know, a Zemeckis uh, version of an old universal horror movie, right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it is gothic. It does have the special effects. It is about monsters, mad scientists, and witches with potions, you know, and it is beautifully done. And it 
is, uh, as we also will discuss, a bit of a of, of maybe um, a, a nod to exploitation cinema, or at least a reference to them. Um, you know, as far as the 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 idea that women who grow old have the audacity to grow old in Hollywood, you know, should continue to want to work. Um, you know, what happens to those women and, and how should they survive? Um, and, and just how awful that all is. And yeah, I just love it. Yeah, I really like that you drew the parallel between Jurassic Park and Death Becomes Her because, you know, when you look at those two films on paper, it doesn't seem like, you know, beyond amazing special effects, they really wouldn't have a lot in common. But they're both kind of tales of mad science where one, the otherness is something that's so beyond human, whereas Death Becomes Her inverts the otherness and the real horror is everything about our humanity, the deterioration of our bodies and how we treat ourselves and society treats us as a result. And I, uh, I love those kind of as two parallel pieces because uh, it shows how man not only fucks up his environment, but we fuck up ourselves. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So Michael, because this is the Death Becomes Her episode, I have to ask, and I know it might seem uncouth, but like how much work have you had done and what exactly have you had done? Oh, you know, just a little jab and a poke here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we all know you've been poked. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I would prefer to take the Jane Fonda approach. Don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say you do aerobics. Um, no, no. Can, you, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Well, I mean, we're going to, we're going to, um, introduce our first couple of guests. And like I mentioned, um, I uh, have had the pleasure of doing many, many shows with these people. Um, but this show in particular, I, I guess this, as far as the three of us doing a show together, this is definitely my favorite. And one of the great things about Drag Becomes Her and working with these ladies, which we don't get to discuss, is that not only did we get to do it um, all over um, the West Coast, um, you know, Seattle, Portland, Los Angeles, San Francisco, et cetera. Uh, we actually were brought to England where we did the show 23 times um, in London and Manchester. Maybe it was more than 23, but every single show in England sold out. And That's it was amazing. just this, it was an amazing experience. So I, because one of the big stresses of being a, both a producer and a performer is ticket sales. And so right. when you don't have that to worry about because the, the producer is doing their job and tickets are selling well and Jinx and Dela and I can just like, you know, enjoy doing the show it's it's magical and i love london i loved living in london i loved i took the tube to work michael hello uh, do you want me to do my british accent for you uh, i don't think anyone's asking for that <laughs> <laughs> touche well, maybe i should do my well uh, maybe later i'll do my isabella uh voice but anyway it, it, it's with great pleasure that michael and i get to introduce uh, dear friends of ours and the podcast, this is Jinx Monsoon and Binda LaCreme. everybody, it's me, Peaches Christ, and I am so excited to introduce our special guests at this Death Becomes Her episode of Midnight Mass, my um, drag family members, uh, 
the wonderful and talented Bindalakrim and Jinx Monsoon. Hi, 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 everyone. <laughs> hello, hello. Darling. <laughs> Uh, I know that we are both excited to have you on the show, and of course we're here today to talk about the Robert Zemeckis movie, Death Becomes Her. And before we even dig into the journey, I kind of just want to know, when did you both discover this film? How, uh, how long have, have you been connected to Death Becomes Her? I think I started watching it in kindergarten. Uh, my mom rented it and thought I would like it because she must have known what a Nelly queen I am. And I, so I've watched it countless times starting at like five or six years old. And I used to quote it. And then my mom had to tell me that ass was a bad word. Cause I'd walk into the room with my clothes on backwards and say, I can see my ass like fully <laughs> five or six years old. <laughs> yes. I too am exceptionally young and started <laughs> watching it. Um, I mean, I think I, I'm, I'm a little older than Jinx. So, but yeah, I was, I was a kid and um, I remember first being exposed to it because remember how MTV used to do like those weird, like half hour commercials for <laughs> movies, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That was where I first saw these, this kind of coverage of Death Becomes Her. And then I, you know, and then that was the VHS that I made my parents rent for me once a week, um, you know, and equally obsessed <laughs> oh yeah my mom had to get two movies for me every time she went to the movie store it was little nemo adventures in slumberland and death becomes her very opposite ends of the spectrum <laughs> <laughs> yeah that is that is not what i was expecting you to say i i i think i was like oh here it comes she started watching gray gardens when she was four years old nah. um <laughs> <laughs> but yes that is that is actually incredible that you both were um, drawn to, of course, I'm much older than both of you. And I actually remember <laughs> the commercial being on television, well, like Dela does, but uh, not necessarily on MTV, but just the regular commercial. And at the time when this film came out, those special effects were actually so ahead of their time. And I remember just being so, because of course I already loved horror, just being so fascinated by the special effects in the commercial. And then when I actually got to see the movie finally, I loved it. I was obsessed with it and uh, then found out that it was not considered a success. Like, was that something that was on your radar as a young person who loved the movie? Did you know that actually it was it was really kind of considered a, a, a sort of a bomb, a disaster? I think I remember the first time I realized it was not beloved universally is when Meryl Streep was on some interview show and I was watching with my mom and she was talking about all her most significant past roles and they didn't even bring it up. And I was so hurt and upset as like a child, as a fan of the movie. And I'm like, they didn't even talk about Death Becomes Her. And my mom was like, well, that's not one of her best known roles and it's not a movie that she like did well so why would they bring it up and i remember my mom was so callous with that information i was so upset because i thought how could this not be the best movie of all time and what i'll say about the special effects is even though we've come a long way in the film industry with special effects when i watch that movie it doesn't seem too cheesy like you can see how they did it and you can some you can see some of the seams and some of the stitching 
But ultimately, like the special effects work today still for for the purpose of the film. Yeah, I mean, I think they work in that they're so much more interesting to look at, right? Like no special effect looks real. Special effects that pass for real now won't look real in three years, you know? Yeah. But but what old Bobby Zemack always has going for him in, you know, Back to the Future or Roger Rabbit or whatever is he's always innovating these things visually in a way that it's like, you don't care how real or not real it looks. It's amazing to look at. You want to look at it, you know? And I love this kind of combination of um, Night of the Living Dead and Tex Avery. Like, it's such a weird, you know, comedic squash and stretch cartoon violence. It's so great. Um, but yeah, wait. Uh, not being, yeah, I mean, I remember being really aware of other kids not giving a crap about it. Like, me, like, just constantly thinking and talking about it at school and other kids like either not knowing what I was talking about or actively being like that movie sucked. And I do think I was old enough to have an awareness that like people generally didn't like it, um, which was strange to me. So what I really am interested to talk to you all about peaches included, since you all three got to do this drag spectacular version of death becomes her, you take this movie that you grow up with and you love it. And one day get to embody it on stage for an audience. Uh, it, it kind of begs a question. So on the show, we talk a lot about what makes the cult appeal of a movie. But a movie like Night of the Living Dead, which is a cult film, has a different kind of cult appeal than Death Becomes Her. So I wanted to ask both Ben and Jinx and also Peaches, what gives something drag cult appeal? Because I think that's something we can all dig into today. I think inherent camp, you know, even though, um, I don't know, it's like, it's high camp, you know, all the female characters in this film are so larger than life, but in very like, um, I don't know, like sinister femme fatale ways, you know, they're not like, you know, you, you, they're not like Bette Midler camp. They're like Marlena Dietrich camp, you know, it's all very serious and dire and Isabella Rossellini is probably the campiest of the three and she's even the like the darkest character and the most like subdued but then also over the top camp just the fact that we first meet her in a necklace top and she's topless and I remember how scandalous that seemed to me as a kid and seeing her butt later in the film I don't know if she had a butt double or what but just like that unapologetic sexuality from Isabella Rossellini was like so camp actually. It wasn't sexy, it was over the top camp, even though it was kind of porny. <laughs> Everything Jinx is saying is completely correct. And I think there's this really interesting thing when looking at cult films and kind of looking at the different cults that build these films up. And there's certainly is a category that is really like the, the drag queen built cult film. And it's actually a big category. And within that sort of uh, niche, uh, you've got films that were actually made for drag queens, you know, kind of by queer people. Like the, I think the films of John Waters, certainly he understood that drag queens would respond to the films that he was making. Uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, these are intentionally made queer movies. And then you've got the movies 
where the filmmakers maybe didn't necessarily intend this, like uh, Mommy Dearest um, or Valley of the Dolls or Showgirls, you know, where the, these are straight men making movies and the performances are so big and so over the top and the sets are so opulent and fabulous and the script and dialogue are so pushed that drag queens love it because honestly it's kind of like it's accidental drag in a way um and the, the films themselves are well hocus pocus another movie that the three of us all um did a parody of is very much that and and you know in in many ways it's similar to death becomes her because it had um a miserable uh performance at the box office and then it was celebrated you know in small ways by being screened on television for people you know over and over and over again and queer people grew up watching it, loving it, and would not let it die. If it were up to Disney, that movie would have been shelved and never brought back to life. The only reason they've re rejuvenated it is because of queer people, you know, um, lauding it and celebrating it and kind of leading the way. Now, with all that being said, I think what's really interesting about a movie like Death Becomes Her is you've got, I think, a very brilliant filmmaker who is a straight man who I actually think knew what he was doing. You know, it's not a Showgirls. It's not a Mommy Dearest. It's not Valley of the Dolls. I think Zemeckis was in on the joke. And I think he has a queer sensibility. He is really, really talented. And I think he decided to do Death Becomes Her in this very, um, like, almost like you feel like he just decided, I'm not going to put any limits on myself. And I think it worked. And that's why <laughs> he made it for us, much in the same way that John Waters or, you know, it, it, and it's it's interesting. He's definitely a straight man. But I think this is an anomaly. This, this happens rarely. And I think that, you know, Meryl Streep knew what she was doing. I think Goldie Hawn knew. And Bruce Willis delivers one of the best performances of his, well, maybe the best performance of his career. I also think that it's important to recognize that Robert Zemeckis, Zemeckis created Jessica Rabbit, right? Like these, yeah. like he's created multiple drag queen icons and it feels like it's, you know, he does know what he's doing, but it seems like a genuine passion for this kind of old Hollywood glamour and this larger than life female character. And I think that what we see when we're looking at what draws drag queens to cult films is women in power, is like, is these really blown up exaggerations of women who have power over the people around them. And it's like, you know, and I mean, I could list off a billion movies that that's true for, but, you know, it, Helen and, and Madeline are in a power struggle, but ultimately they hold this power that little baby drag queens dream of someday they will be this gorgeous woman who walks into a room and hits someone with a shovel. You know, it's like, that's, I think what we all <laughs> secretly want. I was just going to say, I also think that one thing that a lot of cult films have in common is they create their own rules of how things work in this world. You know, like there's this immortality potion, but it doesn't make them immortal. It just makes them eternal. And that doesn't get overly explained. You know, like it doesn't, it's not explained to the women when they take the potion that they're going to live forever. It's implied, but it's not explained. And then when they die, it's not explained why they continue to rot like corpses, but walk around like they're alive. It created its own rules and exists inside its own universe. And 
and then also doesn't like hand you everything you need to understand that you just kind of have to go with the flow. And that kind of reminds me of Rocky Horror. It's like they're they're transvestites, they're drag queens, they're sex addicts, and they're aliens. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know something that I think is important about this movie that often is overlooked or is a, a piece of trivia and not a, pe- a lot of people are aware of is that the script for Death Becomes Her actually was originally intended to be a script for a, a Tales from the Crypt movie. And when you kind of peel that layer back, it, you can see it. Like the movie is 100% that HBO candy-colored Tales from the Crypt. So I really liked what Dela was saying about the appeal to Hollywood glamour because that show really appealed to using the bright colors of comic books and then transposing Zemeckis' obsessions on top of that, it's sort of a drag within a drag within a drag Russian nesting doll. Oh, yeah. I mean, even like the, I mean, the costume design and the architecture in it are so bizarre in that they're this sort of weird blend of the era that the movie is is being created in and old Hollywood and gothic. Like, it's it's a really, I mean, the, the Isabella Rustlingney's castle is such like an amazing example of... Um, of this weird blending of of eras um that yeah I really I I think that that old Hollywood kind of lens and um and aesthetic is yeah absolutely feels like the yeah the translate is fascinating that that was a tales from the crypt yeah. episode also are we going to talk about the fact that Tracy Ullman was originally in this thing and got c- cut completely out <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh my God. There is an entire B plot in which Tracy Ullman is the third character. She's the one who decides not to take the potion and the alternate ending before they recorded the real one was that she and um, Bruce Willis wind up together at the end. And this is an entire, this was all filmed. It was all done. You can see her in the previews that aired on television um the advertisements but she didn't but it hit the cutting room floor and like no one's ever seen it and we need a dvd release with this cut in it we need it released and the original ending um uh that wasn't the ending that we all know is that um bruce willis and tracy ullman end up together and then um Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep spend the rest of their days stalking Bruce Willis, trying to get him to fix them again. And the original ending in the script, and I have a copy of the original ending for the original script, was that it like closes on Bruce Willis and Tracy Ullman at a cafe in Paris. And then you see that like five tables away, Mad and Hell are like spying on them. But it's like, but like Bruce Willis and Tracy Ullman are like old and happy and like have lived a long life, like loving each other. And they're like, you know, well into their old age. And meanwhile, these rotten corpses are stalking them still at it. And what happened is they did a test screening of this ending. And essentially audiences said they didn't feel like mad and hell got their comeuppance enough that we wanted to see them like be somewhat punished in the end. But then it's also kind of like, it's just, I'm so happy with the ending because if we hadn't gotten blah, 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 (laughs) blah, like 
What a perfect way to end the movie. <laughs> and then just the nonsense of like, so now they're piles of rubble. Now they're like broken bodies. What is going to happen when that funeral lets out and people find these broken pieces of these corpse women? What happens next? <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to say, th- those sorts of questions, especially with a with a, an ending like that, where it's meant to, you know, give you a punch and then the credits roll, and you're not really supposed to think about it. But because of doing our stage show and because of writing a parody, you're. It's funny that you bring that up because you do think about it, and you're like, "Well, are they just going to get swept up and put in the trash? Like, you know, like what what you know, like are do they?" somehow get sucked back together. That's kind of what I imagined is like the, the potion sort of, you know, kind of re-glues them together. I don't know, but you know. Well, also, why does Helen care where the car is parked? What's she going to do about it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, that last line is, do you remember where you parked the car? But like, you're a pile of rubble. Yeah, I think the idea is that they plan on like gluing each other back together again. That's what I think. Because they can they, still move. Know. They're still animated. Yeah. And we we get that little snippet of this is something they've dealt with before. You know, when you lost your index finger, I didn't lose it. It broke off. So they've been reattaching and it almost seems like they've been filling themselves with something to keep them like inflated or something. Because, you know, like they don't look like corpses. They look like s- s- plaster mannequins at the end. And like, it's like, what are they filling themselves with to keep themselves upright? Yeah. You know? I like that now we're arguing the science. Of <laughs> the <movie>. science of <laughs> the ending. Well, when, you, when, when something becomes, you know, an obsession, you do start to think about all these things. And, you know, I've had so many thoughts, like why you guys have been talking. Well, one is, I just think it's so cool that there is this whole other thing that I never even knew about. I didn't know about the Tracy Almond thing. I really don't know very much about the behind the scenes stuff with the movie. Um, I've just seen the movie a lot. And, um, you know, one thing I will say about it is it's one of those films where I don't think it's a bad movie that people have decided was good. It's always been a good movie. I was thinking about the Gothic castle and the way Hollywood is presented in the film. And I'm like, yeah, that is actually Hollywood. Hollywood has that Gothic quality to it. And if you, you know, you're there very long, you realize like people, people do live in these houses that look like scary castles. And there is this sort of um, sense of this film as a universal monster movie where I almost feel like Meryl Streep's performance is so great because she's playing women that she's surrounded by, right? Like these are, these are actual, like I feel like Zemeckis and Streep knew exactly what they were doing because this is actually the way people are in Hollywood. This idea of, you know, when you're, you guys, you know, are in LA enough and Michael and Dale, I live in LA. I'm always jarred coming from San Francisco by the amount of um, plastic surgery that exists in LA because the faces look so, you know, Joan Rivers affied, you know, like so pushed. But then when you're there for very long, like I've had to be there for maybe, you know, a month or something, by the end of the month, you realize that's what they want. That is the look. The look is to be freakishly altered. Do you know what I mean? And Meryl understood that. I also think about how, like, even though it's cartoony and it's a comedy, they did work a lot of commentary in about Hollywood, like The Walking Dead of Los Angeles, you know, and and then 
when I tell you, and please don't yell at me, but I only watched Sunset Boulevard for the first time this year on my honeymoon. We watched it. Uh, That's a whole different story. Um, But uh, when I jumped... Okay, whatever. Great talking to you, Jinx. When I tell you, I jumped off the couch when we first saw the interior of Norman Desmond's house, because I was like, that's Madeline Ashton's house. Like they- It's no- I, they Nor- took so Norma. Many, I said Her name Norman. Is Norma. I said, you said when Norman. we saw the- I did not say Norman. I did not say Norman Desmond, but whatever. <laughs> you, the point is- Madeline Ashton's whole- Bates. Oh my God. <laughs> Madeline Ashton's whole like- she is derived from the story of Norma Desmond. She's an aging actress whose career is in the, the dumps, and but she still lives in this fabulous castle. And when I saw that wrapping staircase in Norma, Des- Norma Desmond's house, I was like, mm-hmm. that's also Madeline Ashton's house. <laughs> and you know what else I've noticed is the soundtrack in Sunset Boulevard. If you listen to Sunset Boulevard soundtrack and the soundtrack to Death Becomes Her, there's definitely an intentional similarity into mm. the, the the way they do the staccato kind of... It, it's very... I, I would be very surprised to find out that the composer wasn't referencing Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering because of the Sunset Boulevard comparison, and I, I, I've thought about it before, but uh, by Jinx talking about it so directly, it makes me wonder if there's a world where we classify this movie as a exploitation film because those movies often deal with how a world treats aging women, even though these women are are through the glamorous lens of Hollywood. Is that crazy to think or no? I, I would say maybe it's like a send up to exploitation because, you know, you can see a lot of parallels between the Joan and Betty feud and Madeline Ashton and Helen Sharp. You know, you can see how that informed that. And I think the only reason I wouldn't call it a true exploitation film is because the actresses playing the roles actually seem to be very good friends. I think it's a exploitation uh, prequel. <laughs> yeah, that's a really, it's a really good question though, Michael, because you're right. Like it is, it, I think, I think Jinx is right. Like it's sort of a send up of, uh, that kind of film and and Goldie and Meryl how old were they does anyone know like how old they were when they made this movie I've never known because if you think about it how old is the movie now it's got to be what 30 years old I th- did it I think it came out in either 87 or 89 yeah so it's like they were at the time they made this movie they were considered older women which is interesting because they they went on to you know have you know decades more uh, of a career, and a lot of the exploitation movies, you know, the the reason they got that that title was because they were like, we've got Joan Crawford and Betty Davis, but we can't do anything with them, so we're gonna throw them in this crazy horror movie or you know, uh, whoever, and that that was the intention. This movie is about a woman who doesn't want to become a hag, right? She's trying to prevent that, or or she already has, and she needs, she's desperate to, you know, turn it around. But also, she's gorgeous. She was 43? Meryl Streep was 43 when she made this. (laughs) But also, like, when Meryl's, like, old and supposed to be, like, old and run down and awful looking, she's still fucking gorgeous, (laughs) you know? I mean, they they put Goldie in a fat suit, but Meryl still 
is like a glamorous bombshell complaining about how old and ugly she is. I sometimes am a little offended that comedy performance doesn't get the same level of respect or adoration that dramatic performance does. And so I feel like Meryl Streep is considered maybe the greatest living actor, you know, um, who, you know, who continues to work. And when, when she, when looking at her filmography, the movies that people, you know, always celebrate her for, as Jinx was mentioning, are uh, never the comedic ones, you know, so she's, you know, Sophie's Choice or, you know, Doubt or I don't know, whatever. But she is in all these, you know, fabulous dramatic movies. I have to say that as a fan of hers, and I love her, Devil Wears Prada, you know, Death Becomes Her and She Devil are like, Three, I think, of her strongest, and I, I know that people probably are rolling their eyes, but seriously, I'm being totally serious. Comedy is hard. It does not get enough respect. And I, it pisses me off that she isn't given more attention for that. And I think specifically with Death Becomes Her, it is so outlandish. It is underappreciated how skilled of an actress you need to be to ground that role. Like to really make your audience believe you and go on that journey with you. Because not only is the plot absolutely bonkers and is this reality bonkers, you are an unlikable character. You're not somebody that an audience should empathize with or go on a journey with and she manages it and beautifully and I have to say like I that scene where she is um like flipping out about the party and how she wants to get work done and they won't let her get work done that night I mean that journey she goes on the tits like rocks monologue is such an incredible monologue she goes on such a journey and she like takes you with her and she's like yelling and crying and giving up and she goes through the five stages of grief it's amazing she's like she goes through denial she goes through bargaining she goes through uh, i mean i don't remember the rest but anyway <laughs> um she is such a skilled actress and actually something i found out about meryl recently is that her work started actually in comedy when so she started as a started as a theater actor and like most of the shows that she did in theater were comedies. And she was originally revered for how well she did comedy, but because she also has such a knack for dialects when she started working in, in film, she got cast in all these period roles because she was an actor who could actually convincingly do a lot of different dialects. And I think why comedy, I'm gonna say it on record, I think comedy is harder than drama because comedy is like, you either get it or you don't, the joke either lands or it doesn't. Drama is like, I think easier to fake it. And then when you're receiving it, it's more subjective. Like you can have, a, you can have no connection to the story but still appreciate it because of how, you know, like intense the story is or how artistic the story seems. Comedy, it either makes you laugh or it doesn't. And so you kind of are, you, you've got less room to fake it and less room to um, uh, phone it in with comedy. And to your point about comedy, I think we should mention that Goldie Hawn, of course, is a legend of comedy. Oh, yeah. And of course, she's in the movie. We expect her to be funny. We know she's funny. She's already been genius and brilliant and funny in so many movies. But maybe what wasn't expected 
is the delivery of both Bruce Willis and Isabella Rossellini, who in their own, hold their own, have these incredible performances, fully realized comedic characters that are hilarious. And I, I think it's rare that you get a movie where the four leads like this are delivering at like a perfect level hundred. Like, you know, it's you know, it's very hard to watch that movie and for me to find fault with it. You know, I, it's like, oh, I love this scene. Oh my God, I love this scene. Scene after scene after scene is just, you know, delicious and hilarious. They're all excellent in the movie. So it pisses me off. I mean, I also think it's one of, I think it's Bruce Willis's finest moment. I mean, he is yeah. really taking a leap that unlike anything we've seen from him and anything else, and he nails it. And it's fantastic. I was gonna say, Bruce Willis rarely gets to play roles like this because it's sort of the movie star syndrome. When we go see a Bruce Willis movie, we expect him to play Bruce Willis. And so in this film, he actually got to do character work. And I agree with Dela on this. This is his finest acting work uh, on, on screen. So you were gonna say Peaches? Uh, I was just going to say, like, getting back to the the sort of the cult of it all, um, we uh, have met fans, obviously, of the movie through doing the parody, uh, which has been lovely. So often, you know, we get fans, of course, of Jinx and Dela's. Uh, we get fans of the movie uh, Death Becomes Her, and we get fans of both. What I've noticed is, in addition to, obviously, the drag queens who love it, specifically Death Becomes Her is kind of one of those universally beloved films, like if you're gay and male, right? Like we, like a lot of the audience who came for the movie parody were gay men. And so I, I feel like there's this specific thing that speaks to gay men about the, the sort of the desire to stay youthful, you know, the fear of aging, um, obviously the camp of it all, but also the horror of the film. I think the actual pathology of the film, you know, these women who are desperate to hang on to their youthful looks, gay men in many ways, that there's relatable content to that. And it's again, something that I think Zemeckis really, you know, tapped into well. What what I haven't quite seen, and I'm wondering if if you girls have seen it, do you think there are, do we have listeners out there who have Death Becomes Her tattoos? You know, are there fans who would would attend, you know, a death becomes her convention? Like, where do you think the cult of this film is headed? Or is it is it is this it? You know, do you think it, it's continuing to grow? I, I don't know that it's continuing to grow, but I do know that new generations find it, especially within the queer community. What I'll say is not every queer person I know has seen this movie or is obsessed with this movie. I know what they I, might as well be straight. Yeah. <laughs> what I will what I will say is I have never once met a drag queen who doesn't know and love this movie. And I've, you know, there's plenty of times with drag queens where I'm like expecting them to have seen every movie I've seen and be obsessed with all the same things I'm obsessed with. And that's not true for any other movie. I have never once spoken to a drag queen who hasn't seen and studied this movie. And when I talk to like gay men who love this movie, they love the like one-liners, they love the shovel fight. Um, and I shouldn't close it off to just gay men because I actually did a scene from this movie for uh, a final scene in theater class in high school with a straight boy. And the straight boy played um, Helen, and he was obsessed with this movie. Gay! And we did the He's shovel gay. fight scene. I'm sorry to, to break it to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> but 
I, I've never known another movie where every drag queen has seen it and uh, and is obsessed with it. Maybe Rocky Horror. But even like younger drag I'm not drag obsessed queens, with Rocky Horror, so you can take well, that one. Wow. I'm not. Let's dig into this, though, because you all have, as we've been talking about, starred in a stage parody version of Death Becomes Her. So you got to embody these roles. And you talk about the different parts of the movie that people gravitate towards the DNA of the movie that speaks to gay men or to drag queens. Well, you got to play these two characters. What were your favorite parts of this movie to bring to life for you? Well, I think right away the shovel scene. Oh, yeah. Like, the shovel scene is the focal point of the movie, I think. <laughs> and hitting Jinx with a shovel is like a lifelong dream of mine, I realize. I'm so, so. jealous. <laughs> what, I, what I will say about... <laughs> What I will say about our production with Peaches is we did it very safe. The shovel scene was choreographed. Um, the shovels were were stage prop shovels. When I did it in high school with my um, my my straight high hey, school friend, hey, we just outed you. <laughs> if you're listening, we used real. <laughs> God damn, just bleep his last name. Do me that favor. Um, but uh, um. We did the scene with just actual shovels and we weren't as careful and safe. And there was a moment where sparks were flying because these rusty shovels were like clanging against each other. Um, There's something so satisfying of watching a shovel fight. I don't know. <laughs> There's something watching and- <laughs> two children fight with shovels is- in baby's first. Well, I have, to, I have to say that I'm not sure about the the expansion or the growth of the cult either. However, um, as is the way with many of the um, films that we have parodied, it has been announced that Broadway is going to. Um, do its version, uh, turning the film into a, a musical. Um, I believe they might have even said who was going to play Madeline. I think they said Kristen Chenoweth, didn't mm-hmm. they? That's they. That's who they announced. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. So, uh, are you when when you hear about stuff like that? Are you excited or are you like me, where you're cautiously optimistic? <laughs> the latter, <laughs> because, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because it's something we all love, and so you don't want them to mess it up, right? I feel protective of it. Yeah. Yeah. The problem with reboots is that oftentimes a reboot happens because someone in Hollywood sees the cult appeal and then sees dollar signs. Like, if we remake this movie, um, but then what they lose in the process is what made the movie have the cult appeal in the first place. You know, like if you're going to if you're going to reboot a movie, you have to bring in people from the cult and make sure you're hitting all the notes that we're expecting. And I know we only talked about the shovel scene as iconic moments, but the potion scene's iconic. The um, uh, the 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 pushing down the stairs, like the fall down the stairs. Helen in therapy. Getting shot in the stomach. Oh, the shot in the stomach. My God, watching her body fly through the air and that moment and that just how calm Meryl is. And and the idea that a shotgun is that powerful to shoot, <laughs> since someone yeah. flying. Like if you don't tap into <laughs> all of those moments, we need all of those moments to be hit. And then also it's kind of like, if you're going to redo it, if you're going to reboot it, like they, we need to see it reinterpreted in a way that makes it worth recreating it 
because um, I know I've had friends who are saying like, I don't want to see a reboot because it was perfect already. Like, how are you going to top those moments? Like, is she going to fly even farther? But that's what we did. <laughs> but that's what we did. Yeah, but we we knew we were. <laughs> but we knew we were doing a disservice. Like, we were under the illusion that what we were doing was a good idea. So that's what makes it different. It is true. I will say this. It is that thing where I think if drag queens redo it and it's in this queer, weird universe, and if you've seen a Peaches show, you know that in our show, you know, Jinx is playing Madeline, but as Jinx Monsoon. And Dela's playing, you know, Helen, but it's it's actually, she's playing her through daylights. This weird queering mashup of our actual drag characters with the plot of the movie. Then then we do, you know, um, things that have nothing to do with the movie um, that are related to the drag characters. With the musical, I feel like it's less um, problematic because it's it's a musical. It's for stage. It's another medium. But when you're talking about a reboot, like a, what 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 would you say? Like you know, a remake. Wasn't there rumors about a reboot with I think Kate Hudson playing one of the characters? I can't remember the other actor. And then it was rumored that Lady Gaga would be playing. Um, yes. Get out of here. Yes. No. It, it, it wasn't, I think, now I think it wasn't one of those internet things where some late, you know, some bored queer, you know, decided to put out <laughs> some sort of, you know, fake story uh, because it was, oh. it, was not, it didn't go anywhere. But think about it. Nobody, like, I think with the Broadway musical, sure, we could we could sort of see that. Um, and with a drag show, sure. But to do a, an actual movie remake, I just don't see it. It seems like it would be a disaster. I have a different fundamental issue with this, like, what, like, with the Broadwaying of film. <laughs> film is meant to be film. Make a goddamn musical. Like, Death Becomes Her is referencing a million films. It's shot to be a film. It's that's the storytelling. The storytelling is about Hollywood. It's about place where films are made. And if we're going to do a Broadway like why don't somebody write a Broadway musical for Christ's sake? Stop making movies into musicals. <laughs> it makes me crazy. I I second that. Like what happened to writing new musicals rather than turning movies into musicals? But I don't think it's a steadfast rule. I think there are some successes. I think the Grey Gardens musical is brilliant. I think um, I think Sunset Boulevard's a great example of a successful movie turned into a musical. But the problem is a few successes lead people into thinking like, oh, that's easy. Let's just, and now we have every Disney movie turned into a musical and like nine, time out of, nine times out of 10, it's like, why the fuck did you do that? <laughs> because America is trash and garbage people only they only want to pay they only want to spend money on something they know they like so they'll they'll buy a ticket to Beetlejuice the musical they'll buy a ticket to this because they have nostalgia for it it's sad we are we have no real culture you know so that 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 sort of thing where where a great musical comes along now a great original musical that's like sort of an anomaly anymore because people don't want to invest in it and it's the same thing with Hollywood doing reboots and remakes over and over again. It's really, you know, we're just, it's it's kind of like we're just sadly, well, you know, it all comes down to money. I did have one sort of, um, you know, I know we're wrapping things up and I just thought, I have this idea. Now, eventually RuPaul's going to have to retire, right? And none of us can, none of us can um, imagine that, right? But I mean, in a way, RuPaul herself has a lot in common with Death Becomes Her, right? It's like, how do you look like that? You've been doing this for a million years. 
And you, you know, like you look the same. I would love it if on her final drag race, bear with me, if she walked down that catwalk and then tripped, did like a stage trip and then fell and shattered into a bunch of pieces. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? And, and her head could just be there. Her head could just be on the stage, a la Death Becomes Her, and say goodbye to everybody. And that would be I it. I don't we know that we're... I don't know that we're legally allowed to have an opinion on what you just said or not. <laughs> well, I, I just, I, I just think it would be really cool. It would be very cool. Like, would Michelle and Ross and everyone still have to do one-liners in that moment, or no? <laughs> no, I, I, I see it as like this, this really dark, poignant horror moment that just ends the whole thing. You know, oh she goodness. just, she just shatters, and we all realize she took the potion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm into it. I I know that this part didn't air, um, but I was really grateful my season, and it was um, it was. Are you about to say that Rue's finger broke off yeah, during one Ru of your episodes? I didn't lose it; <laughs> it broke off. Some of it didn't air. There is one moment of me wearing a veil, walking across the screen on camera, and I go, "Do you remember where we parked the car?" And they aired that. But that is only one moment that Death Becomes Her came up that they aired. But Rue was constantly quoting Death Becomes Her at me because someone had told her it was my favorite movie. My first interaction with Rue, my first moment where she walked through and it was when we had to make our own dresses out of trash we got, grabbed out of the garbage. And um, this I don't want this to be too long-winded of a story, but... Um, so like us neither. Um, when I walked in to do the photo challenge in the fish tank, um, Rue was like, "Hi, Jinx, how's tricks?" And I'm like, "What does that mean?" And I had never heard that term before. And then later, when she's doing her walkthrough, and it's our first time, I'm out of drag, she's out of drag. We're like having a human conversation. It didn't air, but I said, "Don't worry, Rue. I've learned what how how's tricks means." And then she goes, "Now a warning." And I was like, in that one moment, with that one line, I was like, oh my gosh, can I be friends with RuPaul? Like, is she trying to be friends with me? Because she just quoted my favorite movie at me. Because she just but responded to what you said with absolute nonsense? That made you feel like you two had to be in common? Drag. That's drag, Jinx people. was like, this is how I communicate too. I just say things, but don't really listen. Yeah, and it drives Dayla nuts, and I love it. <laughs> well, I, I, think the bigger, I think the bigger reveal here is... I know for a fact because I'm um I I know a lot about history. House tricks is actually a way of saying how are things going that was popular in the 30s, which further proves my theory about the potion. Yes. This yes. bitch is, you know, out there saying shit that no one says anymore because she was around in the 30s. <laughs> I'm into it. Do you feel like supermodel was like her book party? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah <that's> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that tracks, honestly. That's Michael, I want to ask, yeah. as, as the one, I mean, I shouldn't assume, but as uh, I'm guessing the one non-drag queen in this conversation, what is your favorite part of the movie? What, what speaks to you as not a drag queen? <laughs> 
Honestly, I love everything with Isabella Rossellini because I came to this movie uh, as a David Lynch fan, so I kind of followed her into this world. And to see her go from his like weird surrealism, which she kind of is in a, a lot of ways giving this level of energy in Blue Velvet as well, just in a very different spectrum. Uh, it was great to see her do comedy. As Peach has said, everyone hits hits their performance in this. and. You expect Meryl Streep to to deliver. You expect Goldie Hawn to deliver. But when she comes in and not only holds her own, but also kind of owns that portion of the movie, iconic. I love an underdog. If if Isabella Rossellini is an underdog, you know she is wonderful in it. That is for sure. Well, ladies, we can we know that you're both very very busy busy drag queens, and we cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come on the Midnight Mass podcast and talk with us all about Death Becomes Her, one of our uh, favorite films. Um, so, yeah, I hope um, the plan is when things reopen that we'll get to do Death Becomes Her, uh, at least in San Francisco. We were going to do it when, when everything got shut down back in March of 2020. Um, I know we were like a few days out. Yeah. Oh, good. I'll play the Tracy Ullman part, finally. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> there you go. And Michael does have a drag alter ego called Waffles Extravaganza. So if we ever do need um, Waffles to <laughs> step in and play Tracy Ullman, we can do that. Um, this is why we need the DVD special edition, so that we can, like, yeah. We do. If, if nothing else, uh, this episode hopefully... Um, will motivate fans to start demanding this of yeah. Bob Zemeckis. So let's let's get going on that. You know, yeah, we need a campaign. Bobby Z, give Bob us what we need. Queen Zemeckis. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, I love you both. Thank you love so you. much. All right, thank you take for care. having us. Okay, bye. bye. Welcome back, listeners. That, of course, was our interview with drag superstars and legends Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme. I have to say, Peaches, what I really loved about this piece was looking at the cult film uh, through a drag lens. Because, you know, so frequently we talk about the camp factor of these movies or the queer appeal of these movies. But because you all have done Drag Becomes Her uh, on stage and have sort of lived this this story through the drag lens, it gave us the opportunity to talk about cult via drag, which is sort of its own thing, because there are certain cult films that lend themselves to a bit of a, a, a drag uh, analysis, like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, Mommy mm-hmm. Dearest, Death Becomes Her, and getting to talk to Dela and, and Jinx about what that means and in, in sort of that dissection I thought was really great. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's been really nice actually doing the podcast with you because I, I often um, live in these worlds where I'm trying to literally create a show um, for the cult of a movie, right? So it's this interesting thing, and not just the cult of the movie, but also the cult of the drag community, the fans, drag culture. And so actually getting to step away from it and talk with co-stars and yourself about why the fuck do we do this <laughs> you know and why why does it work and why do people like it it's really again it all boils down to cult you know it's like people 
we're basically taking this thing that's beloved, the film, and then we are creating a performance which is really designed to celebrate this thing that you love. And it's weird when you think about it, but there's something specific about drag queens, um, you know, interpreting this love that makes it different than when they do a Broadway show or, you know, a, a, you know, a, a different kind or a remake or whatever. It's a specific thing, which is this sort of weird queering of it. And sometimes I think we're actually able to tap into a deeper level of the, the sort of the nuanced moments that people love, believe it or yeah. not. Um, and we're able to say things and make fun of things that, that, you know, maybe they wouldn't do in a, in a different way because we're part of the cult. Drag queens are inherently members of the cult. And so we're not looking at how do we make a quick buck on this on Broadway because it's popular. We're going, oh my God, we fucking love this thing. And you know that moment where Madeline Ashton makes this weird face? I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it times 10. And then when the audience, because I'm Jinx Monsoon, when the audience actually gives me some semblance of applause or approval, I'm going to milk it for 20 more minutes. Well, and it's <laughs> and what's great about it too is that it it forces people who are maybe not part of that world to step back and examine what it is about these things that draw us. And especially in the case of this, you you start to understand that inherent in the DNA of Death Becomes Her is that it was always drag. How Goldie Hawn, right. how Meryl Streep, how Isabella Rossellini approached those characters, it's not just character presentation, it's heightened reality. And drag is an art form of heightened reality. So when then you take these women who are already doing drag and then allow a drag queen to say, we see you and we're going to take it one step further. It's just as like, it's just the best way to celebrate it, I think. Yeah, it's it's really fun. And also um, in terms of, of being members of the cult, I think we can all um, agree that as drag performers, we've probably done um, shows and tributes for things that we love. And then we've done shows and tributes for things that we maybe um, don't love as much. Not that we don't care about them, but I, I can tell you right now, um, the Jinx Monsoon is obsessed, you know, with Death Becomes Her. And so, um, and, and Dela and I are huge, huge fans as well. So, you know, actually getting to watch Jinx, you know, in rehearsals and stuff, you know, do uh, her, her Madeline was always so wonderful because it came from this really tr honest place of fandom, you know. Right. Well, luckily, you know, Jinx is not the only obsessed fan out there. And we were able to talk to someone else this week who uh, is not only an accomplished actor and performer in her own right, but uh, really is a super fan of this movie and comes at it from a really what I think is an important point of view about what the film uh, represents and the layers of, of discussion that are inherent in the comedy and horror. And that person is an actor you may know from Creepshow or Onyx Equinox or Dollface or all the many other amazing credits she has to her name, Fina Sanchez, and we're about to talk to her right now. Greetings and welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the community that worships at its altar. And we are lucky today not only to be joined by an avowed fan of Death Becomes Her, but an acclaimed actor and amazing talent that you know for such work as Creep Show and Onyx Equinox. Please welcome to the show, Fina Sanchez. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, you know, 
this movie is its own sort of spectacle, and uh, it, it kind of stands alone, I guess, both in Robert Zemeckis's filmography, but actually in a lot of the works of the people who are in it. And I'm just kind of curious, because it's so unique, it's a movie you don't really forget once you see it. What was your first sort of encounter with Death Becomes Her? And uh, when did you know you loved this movie? Oh, gosh. Um, So we were a big Goldie Hawn family. Um, I don't think they make comedies like they used to make comedies. Um, And to see someone who in like normal sense would be like this like beautiful blonde ingenue incredible actress um but always played these off the wall bonker comedic characters um always was something that like I couldn't get enough of um but I probably watched this I had a sister who was 6 years older than me so I was always watching things that was probably I was too young for, um, but I'm so grateful that I did. So I probably watched this like as soon as it came out when I was like <laughs> young. <laughs> and is it one of those movies? I mean, we, I feel like there's this uh, cult movie uh, genre now where cult movies used to be these obscure movies that, uh, you know, were, were underground or only shown at midnight a la Eraserhead or Pink Flamingos, these sort of, you know, obviously cult movies. And I think something like Death Becomes Her, you you have this new form of cult movie, newer, I'll say, that I, I like to call the nostalgia film, where, uh, you know, they might not necessarily have been underground but they were on cable television or people had a VHS copy and growing up, you know, you watched it an obscene amount of times just over and over again. Is that, is that one of those films for you? Absolutely. Um, you know, when you're young, you don't appreciate the things that you have because you're a, you know, jerk kid, but <laughs> we, um, we were a, you know, like lower middle class family. So we didn't go to the blockbusters and the movie stores. My mom would go to the library and she would rent VHSs from the library. And it 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 lives in those spaces, those like cult spaces that, yeah, maybe they weren't on the front row at Blockbuster, but they were absolutely in the video in the video section of the library. And we would come home and I now as an adult I am so grateful for those experiences because I got to see all these obscure-ish movies um, that at the time I didn't know any better, but now were so impactful to me as an artist, as an actor, um, as just a person who loves obscure comedy, obscure horror, you know, stories that aren't, you know, told very often. We talked a little bit about your origin of, of, of renting this, seeing it probably a little too young and how that was something you latched onto. But, you know, I think that especially during the mom and pop video store era or renting videos from the library or Blockbuster, if that was your access, um, a lot of people can relate to just video night, right? Like we would rent tons and tons of movies, but then there were those ones that would stick. The movie that you kept renting again and again. And it sounds like this is one of those for you. So beyond just your origin, what was it about the material of this that made you say, aha, that's for me? Mm-hmm. I think it's a couple of parts. I think that what makes this movie so spectacular is the, of course, it's a it's a genre piece, um, but the comedy is outstanding comedy. Um, I think it's one of Bruce Willis's best comedic roles 
if I can be, you know, so bold. Um, but also, <laughs> no, it absolutely is. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it also had to do with these like very strong themes of, you know, morality and and vanity and. You know, I've always known that I wanted to be an actor, um, but I wasn't the prettiest or thinnest or, you know, the typical type. I don't look like Meryl Streep. I don't look like Goldie Hawn. I don't look like all of that. And so there was something in that 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 struck a chord in me um, of seeing what vanity, what what the importance what society's importance of beauty, you know, all of that, what that can do to a person, to a relationship, to a friendship. Um, so it kind of just hits all of the marks. It makes you laugh. It's creepy and also makes you think. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. And I also think that, like you say, it is, it's, it's a, it's a sort of shocking thing to me, well, but so many of the movies I love are in the same boat, but especially this movie where it came out, huge director, I mean, A-list cast. To me, the movie so delivers, you know, it is so wonderful, but it kind of tanked, you know, at the box office. And then over time, because of those of us who watched it on cable television or, you know, had an outsider's perspective on it, like we know now that um, there are these movies that are beloved by gay men in, 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 in a very specific way where it's almost like if you don't love it, it's like, are you gay? Are you sure? You know, and I would say that, you know, Death Becomes Her is one of those films where, you know, like maybe next to The Wizard of Oz, you know, it's like, it is one of those movies where like, if you're gay, you loved this movie. And um, you sort of started to answer the question I had, which is, you did grow up to be in show business, you are an actor. um, And you, I, I don't know where you grew up, actually, that's that could be my next question. So where did you grow up and how did this film kind of shape your idea about, you know, what Hollywood is? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in rural Ohio, mm. as, about, as far as you can get away from yeah. Hollywood. But I grew up in musical theater and in theater in general. And so I almost feel like I had like two lives growing up because I was very much a country girl but then grew up also in the theater, surrounded by theatrics and makeup and, you know. And gays. And gays, yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots of lots of gay men and women. And that was, and especially in rural Ohio, like I, you know, love my hometown, but um, it's a little, it's a little tricky to be uh, a gay man, especially in, in mm-hmm. that area. Um, but I always... Those were my friends. Those those are the people that I performed with. Those were some of my most, you know, um, talk about nostalgia. Like that. Those are some of my most informative years. Um, so, I mean, the movie starts with the most epic, you know, <laughs> Broadway number, um, and you know, of course. That's what I wanted. I wanted Broadway. I, I, you know, at that time, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be the star and sing and dance and all that stuff. So you, you start with this ridiculous, incredible number, um, which Meryl Streep, she's just a legend in this. Um, and then it goes a completely different way. And then it goes a, another different way. And I think that it was that. It was like, wow, something can be 
so many different things in one film. And I think that is what got me really excited because I don't think, you know, this might be an unpopular thing, but I've never succumbed to like, I'm a horror person. I'm a musical theater person. I'm a this person. I've, I've honestly, I love it all. And that is a hindrance sometimes and not. So when I see movies like this that kind of touch on all of those things, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. This movie delivers on so many levels. Um, I think that's maybe what got me really excited about performing and film in general. Well, I think it's important in talking about Death Becomes Her that we do address the layers of this film because as you're saying and is true, it, it hits a lot. Like on the surface, it's this kind of beautiful Tales from the Crypt, multicolored EC Comics mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's there's a morality to it. You mentioned that earlier. When Peaches was talking about how when the movie came out by a major director starring major stars and it still didn't quite hit, part of me always wonders if it's because it was a little too true about Hollywood. People love movies about movies until they reveal the dirty secrets, right? Mm -hmm. And when you were talking about how watching this movie as a kid helped you sort of look at that portal of vanity and stardom, and you recognize that then, but now you've worked in the industry and you see how the industry treats women especially, how has has your your view of this movie changed looking through that scope? It's funny, I... Obviously, I wanted to be fresh for this, so I rewatched it. And I watch it probably once a year, never through the lens of, like, wanting to talk about it. You know, like, not through that. It's just a different way of viewing something. So I watched it um, over the weekend, and interestingly enough, I was on set before the the whole week. And it was the first job that I've gotten post-COVID, you know, like the the first big on-set thing. Um, and I found myself being really insecure about my skin, my face. This year has been stressful, (laughs) I'm sure for everyone. (laughs) Um, and so I found myself being really, really, really self-conscious about my appearance on, on film. I have a little story if we have enough time for it, but then I rewatched this and I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm watching this and I'm just, I'm just kind of like kicking myself because it was like, Oh, that's not what I want to be. It's like not what I've ever put importance on. But as I now get older, as I now get into this realm of my late 30s where we are all we're over the hill, <laughs> you know. Um <laughs> it was really interesting to rewatch the movie and feel r- relatable feelings with Meryl that like it doesn't matter how talented she is. It doesn't matter, you know, her worth. All her worth is based on this and how tight the skin is and, you know, all of that stuff. And and it was a really kind of, I was watching it in this like fun way, getting excited to talk to you two, but it, it really struck me in a personal way that I don't think it ever has before. And I, and it was because it was on the heels of this like very intense shoot, but a good reminder that I don't want to let it affect me because then I can't do the work, you know? Wow. That, that is so great because I, as an entertainer, who's a decade older than you, uh, and, um, 
even though as a drag performer, I think we get a lot more leeway as far as, you know, I, I look ridiculous just, you know, and I you know that beautiful. I look ridiculous. Look oh, thank beautiful. you. Well, so, so do you. Oh my God, you're gorgeous. You know, but it's that thing where you're, you, you, um, you know, we have to look fo- at photos of ourselves. We have to look at film, uh, films of ourselves. We are our own harshest critic. And um, I love that you can use Death Becomes Her as a reminder of the ludicrousness that this show business thing, this machine, the, these pressures that it puts on us. And also it's a real, it's really very telling that I think Meryl and Goldie and Isabella, who are three powerful women who grew up in this industry clearly were in on the joke Mm -hmm. and they knew exactly what sort of desperation they wanted to make fun of and you know and it's i love i love that i love that you watched death becomes her as an actor and it was a reminder like oh yeah this fucking shit because let's face it if that potion were real what's the percent of performers in hollywood that would take it Absolutely. Like 98, you know, Absolutely. or something. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I was on, I was on set freaking out. I'm, I'm mm. going to be totally honest with you because we were stuck at home. I like when I would go outside a lot and I would run or I would cycle or I would, you know, whatever. And I've gotten, you know, dark spots on my face, which like are, is killing me, but they're dark spots. Like <laughs> there's makeup, there's all these things. And I was freaking right. out. To the point where, like, I, I, I'm just, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go. <laughs> like, you know, and that's oh that's just that's just me creating that, fueled by a society that tells us that that that's ugly or that that's that not that's not normal and that like, yeah, I'm I'm over my prime or whatever. When in actuality, I feel like I'm just hitting my prime, you know, like in my life. Um, and and it wasn't, you know, it was at the very end of the movie. Um, are we allowed to, like, give spoilers if people haven't seen this, right? <laughs> yeah, I, of course. I, I think they, for they this, better have right, seen it right. at this point. There's a spoiler <laughs> alert for every episode. Yeah. So Right, yeah. okay. But, yeah, like, at the, the end of the movie is so ridiculous that it made me kind of, like, laugh out loud at myself of, like, please don't let yourself become, you know, this like monster of like doing it to yourself in your head when, you know, it has, and, and not being present in the moment, you know, like in 10 years, Mm -hmm, I'm going to be so angry at myself that right now I was this mean to myself or, you know what I mean? Like all of that stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And it sounds like kind of cliche, but it's, but it's true. And it's, it's movies like this. And I agree with you completely. I think that society doesn't ever want to be shown the mirror of like how awful we are, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, I think that um, this movie kind of shows like, look at like these two women literally being destroyed at the end of this movie because of this like byproduct of this like society that just can't let them age with dignity. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting is, you know, we talk about how Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep and Isabella Rossellini as well were mm-hmm. in on the joke. But even so, that comedy still has teeth because that movie was made almost 30 years ago. And in the movie, you have Meryl Streep basically having to talk about how 
She's mm-hmm. over the hill as far as Hollywood's going. And even though that's a role, that's a part that she had to take on, by casting her to give that speech, there has to be like some psychological games that happen. And luckily, there's a mastery of performance here where Meryl and Goldie and Isabella and even Bruce Willis with his with his wig. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they were able to laugh at themselves. But you wonder, walking off the set, as you're saying, what that does to you. Absolutely. I have to hope that everyone is just as crazy. <laughs> like, we're all a little <laughs> insane, you know? Um, and the more I talk to people who are are successful and, and have been in the limelight and have definitely gotten success, I do I do know that everyone has that little insecure bug that, like, hits in their head sometimes. And I'm sure it was a little bit of a mindfuck for them, even in because they were all in the height of their, you know, careers um, to be playing this role and, and, and questioning these things um, if they weren't, like man, good on them. But don't we all kind of question our own, even besides performing? Like, don't we question, yeah, like, and especially after this year, like the fragility of life, the fragility of our youth, like all of that stuff. I don't know how you have to be a very strong-minded person, um, which I'm sure Meryl is. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting, it's definitely an interesting thing to think about their experiences uh, in in, rea- in relationship to the movie and how they were in on the joke, but also the joke was about them in some ways. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they weren't, they were Hollywood stars who were of a certain age. It's weird to think, of them as being older, especially now, because I mean, my God, they've they've had the, they've all had the last laugh, right? Like they've all gone on, you know, after that movie to do extraordinary things, to make tons more movies, you know, to to win awards. Um, but I was thinking about this film in relationship to other cult movies, and I know Michael, you and I have talked about how it's you know kind of a universe. It's Zemeckis's Universal Monster film, right? It's it's shot in gothic Hollywood and there are castles and drama. The music is so fabulous and and so over the top and then just Isabella Rossellini is like from from one right out of one of those movies except way more glamorous and way more fabulous. But also there's a part of it that is kind of a modern form of hag exploitation where uh that or the film itself is about hag exploitation right even though they're not um in a movie you know they do have meryl in that broadway show and she's she's being trotted out as some washed up actress and i was thinking about betty davis and joan crawford and baby jane and how brilliant they are in that film and how it's also gothic Hollywood. And there are some similarities. And I'd never connected those dots before about, you know, the Meryl Goldie and then the Joan Betty um, thing. And and it, it, it actually makes me go, wouldn't it be delicious if Meryl, Isabella, you know, if, if they all got back together again, Bruce, get the whole, you know, get the whole group, Goldie and and do either a sequel or some sort of other, you know, some sort of fam. Uh, they were such magic together. You know, I wonder if we could, as fans, if we could push for that. Uh, I would be right on the <laughs> first line on that list <laughs> to, to see to see that. Right. Um, and it's so interesting. I'd never, I personally had never made that connection before um, with Baby Jane. It's funny that you say the Universal Monster thing, because that... You know, there's like odes to Tales from the Crypt, obviously, with Robert. As I was rewatching it, and I didn't notice it probably as a kid, the references or the odes to Frankenstein. 
And like Bruce Willis's character being, he kind of got like drunk with power. And so like that started to be in my mind and like Isabella as this powerful witch character. I guess I had never really like put that, like made that connection before, but it absolutely, it absolutely works. What's kind of great too, right? Because he's mad scientist as plastic surgeon and, and she's magic. It's like, it's literally magic versus science, which is what Frankenstein's mm-hmm. all about. So I think right. that's really kind of a brilliant comparison. I guess, you know, we were talking about it, but I just want to know, what, what do you think if they managed to pull themselves together, uh, Helen and Madeline are doing now? Oh my goodness, what a question. <laughs> Oh my goodness! <laughs> well, well, we did we did talk to Jinx Monsoon and uh, Bindula Krem, who I do a, a drag becomes her parody with. So they're also part of this this episode. Which oh, finally yes. you have to see it. It's called wait. It's called oh. Drag Becomes Her. It's a oh Death Becomes gosh. Her parody. Um, and Jinx is he just is leaving know, out the important part that she does the <gasps> Isabella Rossellini role with I one do. of the most flawless oh, accents. Oh my god! I cannot <laughs> wait to see oh, this. Thank you. It actually hurts my. Um, throat. I have to do like vocal warm ups and stuff because her her pitch oh is so high, you know. Um, but I'm always impressed later right. by myself. I yeah. impress myself <laughs> uh, when people say, "Were you lip syncing to a recorded track?" I oh was my like, god! No, no, no. I was. I studied her. That's amazing. And you know, I really. I have to say because I studied her, I have to say Meryl and Goldie are genius. We know they're geniuses, you know, but let's face it, Isabella Rossellini is a bit of an oddball, you know, like she's, we know her from Blue Velvet, best of Mm -hmm. all, but her comedy in this movie, her sense of comedic timing and the way she holds her own with Meryl Streep is so delicious. It's just, yeah, it's wonderful. I want to ask you as the hardcore fan, Mm -hmm. because I have mixed feelings about these things sometimes, but it has been announced that they're going to do the Broadway musical. Now, that was announced a few years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with Kristen Chenoweth doing mm-hmm. the Madeline Ashton part. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Are you excited? So I'm very, I get very torn about these things. Like typically yeah. I am a really like against like remakes or reboots, like especially when it's something that's so perfect. I, mm-hmm. I get really, I get really, I'm um, like, mama bear like territorial over that like I either don't want them to change anything um or I want them to like completely blow it out of the water so that they don't like ruin the first one um so this is tricky because also Kristen Chenoweth is Kristen Chenoweth like she's going to be amazing yeah um but I will I'll be really curious to see like how they how they direct it like how they set it up like are they going to do the gags? Are they going to do the like the the effects? Like how are they going to yeah. do it? Are they going to dumb it down? Like because it's very gory. It's very yeah. gory and that's part of the beauty of it. It's part of the the joke. It's like, you know, the absurdity of Meryl walking backwards with her he- head flipped around is <laughs> the movie. You know, it's Yeah. You know, I've I've tried to not tried, but it's been on my list. I've wanted to do um the hole in the in the stomach Halloween costume because it's iconic. Like I would just hope that they wouldn't dumb down the gore, dumb down the comedy. That was my job, quite frankly. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you want to see if if you want to see the dumbed down theatrical version, go see the Peaches Christ, uh, you know, play starring <laughs> Jinx and Ben, where you know we we, are, we we have a much smaller budget. But yeah, I, I I kind of feel like well, they are doing things like Spider Man and Beetlejuice, and who knows? I, I I would hope, and I'm like you when you take something so perfect. Um, I'm, I'm usually uh, cautiously maybe optimistic, mm-hmm. um, but there have been a few times where I've been proven wrong. I, I never, ever in a million years thought I would enjoy that Grey Gardens thing that they made with Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange when they announced it. I thought, Drew Barrymore? Drew Barrymore only plays Drew Barrymore. There's no right, way right, she right, could right. do Little Edie. And I loved it. So there are those times where, you know, you're I'm proven wrong. So yeah. who knows? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I think as as much as I love Kristen Chenoweth, and I do, I, in fact, I just started watching Schmigadoon, and she's like perfectly arch and evil on it. <laughs> um, but th- it's a show about pairing, you know, just like Betty and Joan and, and Baby Jane, it's going to be about who she's paired with. So you have to have the right Helen Sharp to Chenoweth's Madeline Ashton. And whether that's Sutton Foster or, you know, whoever, Stephanie Ooh. Block, I'm, I'm just throwing out Broadway actresses I like now. <laughs> um, but that that's going to make all the difference, I think. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, I just well, want to see blood. I want to see blood. Well, you know, the Evil <laughs> yes. Dead musical had a splash zone. Which... Oh, yes. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't gotten to see it. It's really fun. That was very off, off, off Broadway. You know, it was a uh, great. Okay, that's right. It was, it was a great, but it was it was created in the underground, right? And right. it was right. super fabulous. This is going to be, you know, these Broadway shows cost as much as a movie, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to make. Sometimes more, millions and millions of dollars. Uh, so, and maybe that's why we haven't heard anything about it because I'm sure with the pandemic and Broadway being completely crippled, you know, it, it's like who knows if there are producers racing to get a new show up on the ground when they haven't they probably still have to recover so much loss. You know, it could be years before we see this. And, you know, maybe Kristen Chenoweth will be too old to play Madeleine Ashton by the time, you know. <laughs> Although, I will say this about that. The whole project in and of itself brings up the issue of ageism, right? Mm-hmm. And the issue of, and, and I really, I as ridiculous as she is, when when I think about a modern day Madeline Ashton who, who may have taken the potion, I very much admire Madonna's commitment to giving a middle finger to everyone who says a, a woman your age should not be dressing like that, should not look like that, you know, a mother. And I love that she, I mean, I want, I'm on her social media. I mean, sometimes you go, okay, girl, like you are doing this just to get that response. I love it. You know, I could talk about this for hours. Like the idea (laughs) that like a woman shouldn't do blank, honestly, like because she's too old or a mother or whatever. And yeah, I'm in for it too. I, I got into a pretty heated conversation the other day about Madonna specifically um, because of people saying that, well, she just does it on purpose. Good. She yeah, should. Good. She needs to, do, because there's so much of conversation on this end of the spectrum. We need someone to be on that end of the spectrum because like, so good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Was it you and I that were actually talking about this? Because I had this conversation oh, yeah. the other yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> <It was>. yeah. <laughs> because I, I was telling, I was telling her that, um, I've had people say to me, like, you like Madonna, but she's a bitch. And I'm like, yeah. I know. And she should be. And also that's, is she really, or is that just the perception that society's cast upon her? Because, you know, to the point that you were making peaches about people commenting on her age now, that's been happening 
since the early 90s when yeah. bedtime stories came out you're yeah. too old for this you're too old yeah. for this and she, she wasn't then she's not now it's bullshit it really is and look where death become hurts her has taken us and <laughs> <laughs> many many ways death becomes her if you if you wanted to look at a modern i would love to see you know um the real life version between uh, Madonna and Cher, you know, where if they did the pop, the, 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 the pop pop musical version. And I think both of those women um, have had the audacity to say, screw you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to grow old and do this. And in some ways, you know, I feel like Joan Rivers and some of these women who had, you know, a lot of work done, you know, we, we, we like to make fun of them. We make, we crack jokes about them, but the sad reality of it is Joan Rivers would not have been working in this industry, would not have been doing the red carpet if she had not had that done to her face. You're not allowed to look like an older woman. And mm-hmm. so the next punk rock thing to do is going to be for women to start getting old and still performing and looking sexy with the wrinkles, without the facelifts, you know. Um, but I love, I love that Madonna has always pushed people's buttons. She's never stopped from day one. You know, I love that people have been mad at her and she continues to do it. So, you know, this is, it's about ageism now. First of all, I think that's the Broadway show. I think we get Madonna and Cher <laughs> to do it. And Yay. then like, let's just yes. call it a day. Like right. that should be the thing. Um, and I am going, Peaches, I'm going to take that comment you just said and keep it very close to my heart, then the real punk rock thing to do is to own your wrinkles and own all of that and like yeah. keep doing what you're doing. Because yeah, I have I have friends that are already starting the the work. Yeah. Um and it's and it's you know it's very tempting. It's very, very tempting. Um but I don't I, if I ever do it, I want I'll want to do it for me, not because right. I feel like I have to or I need to or any of that stuff. And I love being punk rock, so I, I'm going to take that comment and I'm going to keep it very yeah. close to my heart. <laughs> well, I'll give you both a little secret because I know we're wrapping up here. And this is like a little show business secret that was given to me uh, over a decade ago. And again, I, I dress ridiculous. I look ridiculous, but I still am. I st- we're all vain to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm 47 years old and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to continue performing. It was Cassandra Peterson 10 years ago, who is Elvira, who still looks like Elvira. She still looks like Elvira did in 1982 or whatever. Cassandra is gorgeous. And I asked her, like, what is your beauty tip? There were a couple things. One was to stay out of the sun. So, Fina, you know. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but <laughs> hey, you know, I, I also just found out from my doctor I don't have enough vitamin D. So, you know, take it all with a grain of salt. Right. Uh, and the other was if you do the work, which she says you should, uh, you, you don't do the dramatic work. You do a little bit at a time over a longer period of time, right? right. So that you don't have that moment where you go from looking, you know, like, Michael Jackson as a, as a little boy to Michael Jackson, you know, at the end of his life or what Joan Rivers. And I look at it, I look at Elvira and I go, okay, she clearly knows what she's doing. This mm-hmm. is one person who looks, I mean, how do you, she looks like she took the potion. I was going to say, if anyone took the potion, it's the mistress of the dark. <laughs> yeah. 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 She's amazing. Yeah. So that's, that's my, my two cents on the matter. Well, from beauty tips to ageism <laughs> in the industry, uh, the material girl to Meryl, we covered it all. Thank you. With you, Fina, thank you for coming to talk to us about this movie that you love. And touching upon the actual, like, 
important core of what its message is. Because, you know, we can sit and giggle about, you know, and now a warning and shovel fights and Bruce Willis and nuns on hoverboards. But right. this, was the real, this was the real conversation that I think we needed to have about this movie because cult movies last because underneath all of the wacky and weird things we love about them, they say something. And this movie says something and we were glad that we were able to say it with you today. So thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you Absolutely. so, so much. It's an honor to chat with you guys. It's lovely to be here. One of the best movies ever. Yes. Um, and I am so happy to, um, yeah, chat with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Everywhere I look, baby, all I see is a contradiction. Oh, come on. A bad addiction. Knock it off. An inspiration. That's more like it. To a generation. Now you're talking. That's you. That's me. And that was Fina Sanchez. God, Michael, I'm so glad that you uh, invited her onto the podcast. I hadn't met her before. I am a big fan of the new Creepshow series. So um, if you if you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. Fina is fabulous. Fina is fine uh, <laughs> in the show. <laughs> Stupid. Um, but I, I'm... Yeah, I'm realizing as we're doing the interview how really special it is because we're talking to a woman who is, I think, very young because she's 10 years younger than me. Um, But in the world of uh, movie making and Hollywood, you know, she's a little older on the older side because she's in her later 30s, right? And we're talking to her about Death Becomes Her and she's just recently had some onset experiences and I'm realizing like what a deeper level um, we're getting to as far as talking to a fan of Death Becomes Her who's also now in the position of the, you know, the subjects in the movie. Well, I think that's the great thing about a lot of the cult films we talk about on this show is that we find them at a certain point in our lives that we latch onto them. But if the film has a certain substance or a certain connection, we grow with it. You know, when we talked to Eve Lindley and her attachment to Jawbreaker, Eve so eloquently talked about how from the time she saw the movie as a kid to now, her attachment to the movie and the characters within the movie changed over the mm-hmm. years. She always loved the movie, but the things that drew her to the movie grew. And I think, you know, when talking to Fina about how she saw this movie, Death Becomes Her, on VHS, and she was drawn to the certain aspects to it of it, and looking at the vanity of Hollywood and sort of laughing at it as a kid, but then as an adult, on the flip side, experiencing that disparity of how women are treated in the industry and understanding you know, within the dark comedy of what Madeline Ashton and Helen Sharp are going through in the film, that there is that vicious truth to it all. I think that just brings layers to the discussion and that continued appreciation that makes a cult film forever. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I'm ready to admit here on the Midnight Mass podcast, kind of a creepy secret I have, which is that I find Bruce Willis in this film to be a bit of a zaddy. (laughs) okay sure i mean in all the kind of movies that you might be attracted to bruce willis and i guess the cliches would be what i don't know die hard probably that never really did it for me but for whatever reason his dorky fumbling buffoonish you know um character in death becomes her is is sexy to me 
Do you not agree? No, I actually, I can understand that. And I, I think for me, part of the appeal of, of Bruce Willis in this movie, and I talked about it when we talked to Dela and Jinx, is the idea that Bruce Willis is one of a very small class of actors in Hollywood that are bona fide movie stars. When you go and see a movie with Bruce Willis, he's at the point where really what the audience wants is they want to see Bruce Willis. Sure, he may be John McClane or blah, 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 but he's always to some degree portraying Bruce Willis because that's that's a movie star. We want Tom Cruise. We want Tom Hanks, blah, 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 blah. But here, because he does not have to be the machismo, he doesn't have to be the Bruce Willis persona, and he gets to remind us, hey, I'm also an actor. And he digs in and he makes himself small and he, you know, kind of pushes the power over to these two amazing women. Mm -hmm. There's something like charming about it because we, we had lost that along the way. We had to deal with like the man's man machismo version of Bruce Willis for so often, for so many years that to see him play this and to play it with relish, like you could tell he was having a good time. Oh, he's so good. It's such a reminder of his talent because let's face it, like yippee Kaye, motherfucker, not my jam. Right. But, um, you know, his earnest, his, his, you know, Oh God, I just love him in this movie and he's so wonderful. And, you know, um, of course, the 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 holy triumvirate of you know stars between Isabella, uh, Meryl, and Goldie is just perfection, and it's just wonderful to see him. You know, um, kind of hold his own, not only hold his own, but really shine, like you say. Um, so yeah, I I love this movie. I'm so glad we did it. Uh, I'm I'm. Really looking forward to eventually someday when it's safe again. Um, you know, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, but we are recording this podcast in 2021. And, you know, we are not out of the weeds yet. The The Delta variant right now is um, is ripping through uh, uh, all sorts of cities and environments. And so the idea of doing... Um, my kind of shows where we're packing $1,400, $1,400, I wish, <laughs> $1,400 tickets. That's how much I should charge. Wow. Uh, no, I wish, please. I'm just a poor, humble queen trying to get by in this world. And someday I hope to be back on stage, but not until it's safe. And yeah, so 1,400 people packed inside the Castro Theater. It's going to be um, a little while. My hope, Michael, is that we get to do the show in early 2022. And Drag Becomes Her will be the first big Peaches Christ production back at the Castro Theater when we're finally able to do shows again. And my other hope is, you know, that you get to come up and be part of it and that we we sort of wrap Midnight Mass into the show somehow. We'll have to figure that out. Uh, I'm ready and willing. I mean, I did say that I would play the Tracy Ullman role should the, uh, should the opportunity <laughs> arise. Um, okay. You know I have to say I'm very impressed as we're wrapping up that we two uh, queer men who love this movie made it through the entire episode without once making and now a warning joke. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it's kind of amazing that not just us, but, you know, the Dela and Jinx were on this episode, too. And, and <laughs> I mean, like, it's, it's actually like, you know. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. In fact, we really didn't dive into the the incredible dialogue at all, you know, um, and the most famous line, of course. Well, I'm glad you're bringing it up now because, right. you know, in a way, you're a, you're patting yourself on the back for something that you actually just did. 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You just couldn't let the episode end without giving us a now a warning. Right. And what more of a Madeline Ashton move than that? (laughs) You're welcome, darlings. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Michael, I just hope you remember where you parked the car. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're at home, just remember you're all now children of the pod porn. Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.